Hello and welcome to our Unenlightenment podcast. My name is Eric English. I'm your resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Well, hey everyone, we got another great show for you today. I have with me Doug Paget. Doug is a friend of ours here at Unenlightenment. He is an author, podcaster, and activist. Doug has written and contributed to several books. His newest book is called Outdoing Jesus. Doug hosts the Now We're Talking podcast and has been an all-around troublemaker in the church for years. <laughs> he is with us here today. Welcome, Doug. Eric, so good to be here. I, I love the title of the podcast. I feel unenlightened on most days, so that's uh, <laughs> my alley. Hey, I guess we probably should have added uh, to your bio that you are one of the forefathers of the uh, emerging church. So you, Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, were all part of those uh, early days of the emerging church? Yeah, a long time ago. You know, we're now talking two decades ago. A lot of us mm -hmm. were trying to figure out what the function of the Christian faith could be in not only our own lives, but in our, in our collective life as spiritual people, church leaders, society. And uh, a lot of our organizing ultimately came under a little banner that people like to call the, uh, the emerging church. You know, we started in a network called Emergent Village, and we were uh, been active in that work for a very long time. Yeah, that's great. Oh, uh, that's what introduced me to what we now really call progressive Christianity and stuff like that. So very indebted to all of your work and stuff like that throughout the years and taking those arrows in the back for us that come afterwards. Yeah, yeah thanks. I mean, I, I do appreciate that a lot. And, um, you know, none of us really felt like we were um, taking arrows for anyone else. Like we, uh, and now it now we look back, and we're like, oh man, that's what was going on. Uh, you know, at the time, it's just part of the struggle, right? You're always uh, every industry goes through this, and every tradition, uh, especially the faith and religious traditions, go through um, these periods of time where people are trying to find their new path. You know, they just realize that the path they've been on brought them to where they are. And then you want to continue that path, perhaps in a different direction. And uh, that is oftentimes met with a level of resistance that is uh, still quite perplexing to me. I, I didn't grow up in Christianity. I didn't grow up in the inside the faith or I didn't go to Sunday school as a kid. My parents weren't part of it. Uh, and, and I feel a little bit like that has helped me to not feel like I'm violating my family's traditions by making these changes. I'm not insulting my grandmother. By, Just uh, everybody else's grandmother. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, I mean, I can't be responsible for your grandma. Uh, but so it takes some of the sting out of it a little bit. Like, hey, look, we can totally do this different. Like, I'm not hardwired into any one of the traditions. So, yeah, I don't know. If you move over here, that's not, you know, it's not the Hatfields and McCoys you know, uh, a feud that's been going on that I'm, I'm betraying and becoming a traitor. And man, I'll tell you in the early, I don't know, you know, if you want to talk about this, but in the yeah. early days of the emerging church stuff, there were people who were so worried that we were all going to become social gospel liberals. Um, this is like in the late 1990s, mid 1990s, early 2000s. And a number of us, and I was one of those was like, well, Maybe that's all we're going to end up as. I don't know. But would that really be so bad? And I just realized that some people had grown up with that expression of Christianity being the thing they were afraid of. Mm -hmm. 
most of all, right? And if you don't grow up or someone's not indoctrinating you from, a, from your start in Christianity to be afraid of that, it seems like a really curious thing to be afraid of. Like, really? So you think that uh, caring about the way people live with one another as, and that that's the outcome of the, the truths that we proclaim and the beliefs that we hold? that's the thing you're afraid of. I used to joke like, look, if that's the worst that the church is going to produce in the latter 20th and early 21st century, we're doing pretty good. You know, if uh, people caring about the social constructs and social uh, impacts of the gospel is a failure, man, we are, we are really down to the finest of fine points. You know, we're, we're literally arguing about our favorite feel of our, of our ink pens, uh, once we've once we've reached that age, well, but by the way, which I'm very particular about my ink pens. Um, mm. There are some pens that I just almost refuse to to write with, and I have a little collection of pens that I like that I like very much. So yeah, I get the cool. idea that you know sometimes we get picky and bickery about things that don't always matter. But if that's where we've gotten to in the in the Christian faith, is that you know it's the, the we're, we're down to that level of argument. That seems like uh, we've really accomplished something quite great. Well, to me, when I w- would read um, writings or uh, listen to messages, it always seemed to me that it was just a, a group of people who were uh, questioning and just really trying to find what the authentic gospel is. And, and to me, that's what's perplexing is how that could be met with such disdain. Right. Yeah, you know, in some ways, I guess you could say we were saying the quiet parts out loud, right? We, n- none of us who <clears throat> were thinking about these things and saying them out loud and questioning the uh, the long held narratives that we'd been handed, we weren't like, "Hey, no one's ever thought of this question before." We were saying, "Everyone we know is asking these questions. <laughs> like everybody around us is wondering about these things." The fact that I'm a leader asking these questions, that's the problem. I, I remember speaking at Bethel Seminary, which is a seminary I had graduated from back in 1988. And I was there in the late 90s, early 2000s, must have been early 2000s, as a speaker for the incoming class of, of new, new students. So it was like the fall orientation class. And the person who brought me in really was working and worked in the seminary for a long time, was trying to move that particular seminary forward. And it came from the kind of center set evangelical groups. Um, so not the charismatic Pentecostal side and not certainly not the conservative fundamentalist side of the Southern Baptists and other exclusivist Baptists. But it was in this, you know, Christianity Today, Fuller Seminary, Wheaton College, Eastern University crowd, right? So, you know, a lot of people there thought, hey, there's a lot of potential for these folks to think, think new and fresh. And so I just went through, a, I did a presentation, a weekend presentation, like a retreat on uh, issues that I thought mattered to all of us as people are entering into seminary. I did it on a long list, then let students pick off of that list the different topics, and we would then construct the conversation around those topics they would pick in this very dialogical style, which is the preaching style that I was uh, working at the time. I was a working pastor at the time. And it started to get a little bit um, rowdy with the students who really liked it. And I could feel the vibe of the administration sort of turning against it. So after the thing is all done, I meet together with the, the provost and the president and they're not happy. And they said something uh, uh, to to the uh, along the lines of 
um, and this is near a near on quote, but I, I, I may have embellished it or dropped a sentence or two, but they said something like, Doug, look, we know that students come into this seminary with a postmodern mindset, but our job is to make sure they don't leave here with one. Uh, so your narrative that, yeah, this is where culture is. We recognize that's where culture is. Our job is to be the resistance to that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I, I thought was the clearest articulation of the struggle that a lot of us were in was like, oh yeah, so we're not arguing about the way things are. We're arguing about the way we want things to be. Mm-hmm. And when you're in that argument, you realize, okay, that's different. Because if you keep making the, if you keep uh, uh, making arguments, trying to help people recognize the situation we're in, and their only concern is where we're going to end up, you're really talking about two different things, right? Uh, uh, you're talking about two different parts of the trip. And so they would totally go along with, yeah, we live in a postmodern society that has the influences of, uh, of a lot of um, thinkers. And our job is to give people the protection against those very thinkers. Uh, and then I had turned into one of the thinkers they wanted to protect people against. And I thought that is just, that is just ironic beyond belief. Well, hey, when you're sitting in those meetings, you know, in the early days and you're, you know, you're just having a meeting like anybody else has a meeting, right? And you're talking about the direction of the church and how you'd like to see it go. If you could have projected that 20 years into the future, it would have been as successful as it was. uh, I mean, could you have predicted that it would be this awesome? Well, that's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I guess I have felt the opposite of that. I felt like, well, don't really know what all that produced. Um, you know, <laughs> evangelical traditions, uh, the mainline church, the uh, Catholic church uh, has tended to follow right along the path they were on before. Um, you know, uh, maybe there was a little detour during some minor construction that went on, or maybe some minor deconstruction to the highway that they were all on. But boy, they seem to just be clicking along without concern, you know, Christian nationalism is still on the rise. Uh, 50% or, or more of all uh, white Christians uh, support people like Donald Trump and current Republicans and, and want to keep pushing forward for uh, all of that sort of uh, nonsense. And uh, it seems as if some of the social ills are still not being addressed by people in church. So there are days, Eric, where I just really wonder like, well, did we do any good at all? Uh, now, I'm not saying good things didn't come out of our project. They did, but the things we were trying to get after, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, some days I feel a bit like uh, how those researchers who were trying to solve for heart disease and ended up with a medication that they really believed was going to help deal with heart, uh, ongoing heart problems. It ended up not being as effective with heart problems, but uh, was great to deal with erectile dysfunction. So it became <laughs> Viagra and say, and say Alice. So uh, the great benefit came out of all the work they did, just wasn't the work they thought they were trying to do, right? They were okay. trying to do something else. And so all in all, you know, great success. Thank you. Um, but there's still this gnawing project that some of us were up to at the time. And um, I, I, I don't know, you know, I just think, wow, the, the lessons not learned inside the, the Christian tradition and the use of leaders and power and all this, you know, not, not to pick on a guy who can't defend himself, but the fact that Jerry Falwell Jr. has fallen from grace in his world because of the kinds of things that he is um, 
guilty of, you know, uh, uh, the being public in one way about people and then having his own sexual fetish of watching his wife have sex with a young man while he sits in the corner and watches. The fact that that's not even a thing that people are worried about, that someone with the reputation, power, and influence of Jerry Falwell Jr. is just sort of like, yeah, you know, we just sort of move and everyone just absorbs it and takes it in. Uh, people support uh, an insurrection of our capital under Christian nationalism banner. Nah, you know, hey, that's just how it is. Let's not get all wound up about that. Uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, if you had described the last 48 months and said, uh, here's what's going to happen 20 years from now, and here's the set of conditions that we're going to be in, that would have seemed like a deathscape <laughs> to our imagination back then. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, a fine question is, well, what sort of utopian world were you all imagining? Um, which is good. <laughs> uh, but it didn't include a lot of this stuff. So I, there, there are days where, you know, I don't want to just sound like a kind of a crotchety old 54-year-old. But, um, yeah, there are days where I wonder, like, uh, uh, and, and I've just concluded, look, that's the best we could have done. Like, we, 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 we did our very best. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't have, you know, I'm not like sitting around feeling sorry for myself at all. I just think, yeah, you know, we, we all knew we were in a deep experiment theologically, methodologically, culturally. And as our scientist friends remind us, most experiments uh, prove not to be, uh, you know, not, not, not to come out the way you wanted them to. A, a negative outcome from an experiment is just as powerful as a positive outcome from an experiment. So, so yeah, we, we learned a lot and um, I'm a little disheartened by the fact that some of us thought that maybe culture and society wanted a greater level of cooperation between religious leaders um, and for people to look at it through a different lens and to really find a kind of um, way of collective action that would be better. It's one of the big projects I was working on that a community-based orientation globally would be something we could work on and that, that seems to be as as far off of a dream as, as it ever was. Well, I guess from my perspective, um, I, you know, I don't know what those early conversations look like, but the, what resulted, I think is it to use, I guess, to use your, uh, analogy, um, you're, you have, uh, solved the erectile dysfunction problem. <laughs> <laughs> There's some vibrant, there's some vibrant uh, spiritual practices going on somewhere. Um, so uh, I, I just think that it sort of set the course for uh, a lot of people. I know myself, I, I know I for sure would not be where I'm at today without the emerging church movement. I know there's a lot of people out there that are in the same boat. I don't call myself emergent or anything like that, um, but I do call, probably call myself a progressive. Mm -hmm. And I certainly wouldn't have been. I was in an evangelical school when I encountered the emerging church for the first time back in the early 2000s. And um, I just couldn't believe that there were people out there asking the exact same questions that I was asking. Um, and I couldn't believe that my fellow evangelicals weren't asking those questions. So if I felt like a camaraderie um, yeah. with, with you all. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, I, I probably... Uh, I, I'm quite certain I've stayed in the Christian faith because of that camaraderie, because of those friendships, because of the women and men that have uh, become mentors and, and teachers and, and friends uh, through all of that, for sure. And that was a big part of our project. You know, we used to refer to our 
the the organization that we were running this network as uh, a network of friends and um, friendship was meant to be the operative uh, verb there, you know, sort of thinking of Jesus saying, I don't call you servants, but I call you friends, like reimagining a a relationship of, of uh, uh, people to one another and uh, to try to create a sense of one anotherism, which I think is the great Jesus teaching. And uh, yeah, the, and, and that's, and that's happened, you know, um, we just had a whole lot of imaginations that all the fracturing that we saw in the generations before us wouldn't befall us. So perhaps that was hubris, right? Perhaps it's like, well, that's not the thing you get to solve. There's some other things you get to solve. Uh, and uh, so, you know, general blood flow through the, through the body is a good thing. Uh, so that's what we get to, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, uh, I, but, but I do think that anyone who's endeavored in a big project um, and you've asked other people to pay attention to your big project, whether that's, you know, little subsets of religion, like we were doing uh, in the work we were doing, or people that do really big global projects or someone that's starting a neighborhood, some neighborhood garden, right? You, you have a, an idea, you have a dream and you want to invite other people into it. And, and so they all then pay attention and, and can form an opinion about it. I, I think it's a good thing for anyone doing any project like that to be as re, as, as realistic looking back at what they've done as it is, as they are looking forward at what the dream is. Right. And depending on if someone's future focused or past focused in their, in their sort of primary orientation in life, it's easier for some people to imagine what could be uh, and see how you want change to be made and harder to look back. And, and I think it's important to, to look both ways uh, as much as you can and to really be able to say, yeah, here's the thing we were projecting to do. And uh, here's, here's what came of it. And here's what didn't. And that's, that's not a failure in the negative sense. That's a failure in the positive sense, right? Like, well, that didn't work. <laughs> now, what are we going to do? So many people fear failure. We used to talk about this all the time. I wrote a whole book about this. Um, the thing about our, I started a church called Solomon's Porch. And in this church, we it was this wrote this book with the subtitle a week in the life of an experimental church and the notion of being an experimental church was we tried all kinds of things that didn't work like that was the point we were trying to work through the things that didn't work it was a bit like someone looking for a lost item in your house if you only one spot you're going to look is where the item is everywhere else you look is a failed part of the project, right? Like, but that's the point of it, right? You're looking for all the, you're looking at all the places where it isn't until you get to the place where, where you find it. So the failure is so important. And, um, there are so many people who just don't know how to organize their own emotions. Um, and I've had to learn this, you know, around failure being something that we can, we can endeavor. And I don't think the church is very, very good at that. Thing. I mean, I don't think, I think there's a lot of culture that's not very good at that. Churches might actually be better at that than others because we have more experience, but the, it's a really important part of the whole thing. And uh, I, I, I wish we would have more um, kind of a spiritual discipline of the failed experiment. Uh, um, I, think, I think that's, you know, you ask someone to sort of describe their life to you, like, hey, how, how'd you end up here? Um and there's a version of which we all hit the high points, like, well, I got this job, or I graduated from this place, or I met this person and fell in love, and we moved here, and we did this, and we had these kids. 
Then there's the other side of that. Like, what were all the things that didn't go the way you wanted them to go that got you to that job, got you to fall in love with that person as opposed to the other person about the, the, you know, the, 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 the family desires that didn't come true. Boy, that stuff too, right? As well. I'm, I'm not saying only dwell on that. I mean, I do have some friends that seem like they only dwell in the, in the, in the anti, in the negative and the missing. Um, I just think we have to deal with both. Like, yeah, we were doing some things and it's okay to say what, what didn't work. Boy, that, that, I mean, I like being around people who can talk like that and can, can integrate it. And sometimes, sometimes that takes a while. Um, we always knew we would talk about, um, Look, the measure of whatever we're all up to uh, needs to be measured in 20 years. It's it's like it's like people who work in forestry. That's why we that's why I use the word emerging actually and emergent because it was a forestry term about growth that happens in the forest uh, down low. So treetop growth or high top growth is what you often see when you walk through a forest. But somebody pays attention to the health of a forest, looks down at the ground to see what's referred to as the emergent growth, the growth that's just starting to emerge through the soil or through the, the leaf or needle bed. And you can have a very healthy looking forest from the tops and a very dead forest at the emergent level, or you can have a nearly burned out forest like in a forest fire, but the emergent growth is more robust than ever. Um, and it's that, it's that coming, that coming through that uh, of the thing that's, you know, thing that's coming. So, so I don't know, I, that, that's the, that's the perspective that a lot of us were, um, were, were getting at. Um, but, you know, people used to, a lot of us would bicker with the term emerging church. You know, we would say like, be a little more comfortable if we would just flip those two words and call it the church emerging, like what is coming, not the, because, you know, it, it's easy. And I see little tweets every now and again, where somebody from 2006 is, you know, remembering their, their old life and their passions are like, Hey, whatever happened to that emerging church thing, that thing ever finally emerge? I'm like, okay, that's, that's <laughs> clever. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what we were talking about was the continual act of that, which is coming, that, which is emerging as <laughs> a continuous action, not the thing that, uh, emerged and came, but, uh, uh, you know, you don't get to pick your titles. I've realized, um, you know, that's just not a, you, all, all you can do is incorporate them and try to try to do with them what you will. So let's, uh, uh, bring this up to the present now. And you are part of something called the common good. Um, do you want to talk about that yeah. for a minute? A lot of us have been struck by, okay. Uh, if what we're up to is, something the Christian faith calls you to, which some people use the phrase, the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Some people would call um, uh, the common good, uh, the, the good news, the gospel, right? Like what is good about the news? Uh, and that is, you know, this idea that everyone's included, that that is a practice of caring about that, which is good news. That's not restricted only to, to Christians, of course. I mean, every, every, human being is baptized into the, the, the work of the common good, you know, at their birth, you know, so you don't, you don't need some other group to add on to your human life, the call to be good, do good, and make sure that other people have the chance to live and do good as well. So we've been trying to organize this way, re re realizing, you know, the churches, 
uh, often are not organized around that. They're often organized around self-preservation or around a doctoral teaching or something else. And so the, the imagination of Jesus that you would be workers in a harvest of God to bring about the good in the world and through the world and for the world, that can often get lost inside the, the organizations that have uh, formed around that idea. So we've been talking about what, what that could look like. That, that was spurred on in great passion by the election of Donald Trump, primarily by religious people. There's no chance Donald Trump becomes the, the nominee of the Republican Party in 2015, 16, and no way becomes the president in two, you know, swearing in the oath of office in 2017 without an unusually high level of support from uh, white religious people. Well, that shot, uh, that, that was one of the experiments uh, results that made some of us say, oh, okay, we gotta, uh, we gotta ratchet uh, our, our sales to another, uh, another direction here and figure out what we can do. So we tried to say, let's make, let's make the common good more explicit and more aggressive in the work that we're doing to invite people into it. So one of the organizations we started was one called Vote Common Good, which was trying to ask faith people uh, of all kinds, uh, but specifically white evangelicals and white Christian and white Catholics to make the common good their voting criteria as opposed to something else. Uh, and sort of right. in the same way that many of us traveled around and tried to say to churches, could you make the good news the point rather than the fill in the blank, you know? <laughs> It's not all that shocking, but it really lands with a punch. So, so that was work that we did. And then we realized, well, voting's not enough. I mean, you have to be part of a large, there's, there's a larger thing than your civic life as expressed through your vote that happens on occasion. Like it's really important what you do with your vote, but it's not the only thing you do. You, know, you should, you know, if you live in a place where you own a car, you should learn to drive, but learning to drive isn't leading a life but you really do have to learn how to drive. So, you know, we were like, people have to figure out a different way to be involved in their voting because they do it often enough, but there needs to be something more. And that something more is uh, what we organize this uh, thing we're referring to as the common good coalition. Um, and it's yet another effort to try to create some kind of collective action, some kind of togetherness. Uh, it's, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if this should be told as the story of, you know, a group of people who are persistent and, you know, we get to uh, write some snappy book later that's sold in airports about <laughs> the power of resilience and persistence, or if it's that old proverb uh, repeated in the book of uh, Peter about a dog returning to his vomit and a fool repeating his folly. Like, are we just doing the same thing over and over again, getting the same results? Um, but I don't know. It feels like it's the, it remains the call to a lot of us to uh, call people back together again, to do something good with each other for the benefit and blessing of the world rather than the benefit and blessing of simply our adherence. So, so that's what we're up to. And it's as ragtaggy as, as ever, you know, and, um, and we continue to hang around a group of people who don't like to be identified with anyone else's moniker. So, that's that's one of the features of the kinds of people who say yes to the common good or yes to progressive views of spirituality. They also really resist having anyone put a title on them or a name on them or, or suck them into their little group. So uh, we have to figure out a way to do this that doesn't feel like it's just moving you from one group of isolation into another group of isolation, right? Can you can you live in a communal 
uh, expression with people of difference all across the country, all across the world, all across time. Is that, is that actually possible? So you have a, a project coming up related to the common good where you're going to be biking um, along the border. Yeah. We're, you know, I, I'm a big fan of spectacles. I think spectacles <laughs> matter, uh, right? I, I think we, we organize our lives around um, unusual moments that are spectacles, you know, it could be a birthday party. It could be uh, uh, an annual celebration. It could be a, a surprise you're doing for someone. It could be a special meal that you have. Like we punctuate our life, uh, the normalcy of our life with unusual moments. Mm -hmm. And when you make a spectacle out of the things you want the world to be like, that's better than making spectacle out of the things that make the world the way you don't want to like them. Um, and uh, our current uh, media news sourcing taps into the part of the, the human brain that connects um, a break in the pattern with something that creates conflict or fear. You can put those two together in a really powerful way, right? In other words, news, uh, we talk about in our, most of our world, even when I do my doom scrolling you know, on my phone, uh, I'm looking for the things that look like they stand out and are unusual, and then have some kind of call to action in there that can feel like a negativity. Because um, that sort of fires up the dopamine, it fires up the other chemicals that I don't know the names for them, but they, they work in, the person's, in a person's brain. Uh, and I'm not critiquing that. that. That is how human beings have stayed alive as long as we've stayed alive, right? It's a really good thing to look out for danger that stands out differently than all the other, all, all the other normal things. Um, but we also need these times where we make spectacle out of that which we want the world to be about, those good things, right? So, I mean, very rarely, I guess if someone's like 112, they get a news story <laughs> that says, you know, birthday party for someone 112 years old. But, you know, like, you know, Eric English had birthday party is, is not news to anybody else. But it's really great for you and all the people around you that say, hey, we want to celebrate your life. We want to recognize that you're alive and that you matter and all this. So uh, how do we celebrate that which we want? How do we punctuate it? So I'm a big fan of spectacles that, that drive us to the things that we want. I think there's disruptive positivity through spectacle. So I've spent a lot of my life trying to create those. I actually think that's what Sabbath is for Jewish community. I think that's what church communities, church meetings should be about for others and, and uh, spectacles don't always have to be grand they don't have to be elaborate they can just be they can just be meaningful so one of the spectacles that we're doing in this fall is to raise awareness around our broken border pra practices and try to call for something better uh, so we're going to do a bike ride from san diego california to saint augustine florida I like to say from saint to saint <laughs> uh, from coast to coast uh, that takes us along the border and then along the coast, uh, the border of U.S., the United States and Mexico, and then along the coast uh, of this country to try to raise awareness around this. And we're taking bicycles um, because we want to go slow, because we want to pay attention to what we're seeing, because we want to shine a light on the stories of the people who live and work and are impacted by, by our border policies. Uh, and it's a bit of a spectacle right? Uh, like when you say to someone, hey, do you want to do, do a bike trip with us for 3,200 miles across the country along the border through the desert? People are like, that's crazy. Why are you doing that? Right? 
uh, it, it attracts, it attracts the attention. Um, because that's how, that's how we work as humans. That's, that's sort of our, that's our jam, you know, uh, that's what we do. Uh, so, so we're, we're doing this route. We're not expecting that most people are going to ride every mile with us. In fact, uh, we expect very few will, but we think someone could ride for a mile. They could ride for a day, uh, maybe 50 miles. They could ride for a week. They could ride for a couple hours. They could ride for a week and only ride two hours each day. Uh, they could do it on an electric bike. They could do it on their own. We'll provide bicycles for them if they don't have them. So start all starts September 10th, runs through November 14th. Um, and we're asking people to pay attention to what's happening. In addition to that, we're asking people to host their own community bike rides. We call this whole thing the, the We the People for Common Good Immigration and Border Practices ride. That's snappy. So we call it the, the We the People ride. And we're asking people to host a We the People bike ride in their own town, wherever it is. Up in North Dakota, over in, in Ohio, you know, somebody down in... Uh, in uh, deep Texas, but not along the border. So they can host their own ride that then connects to this other story and says, well, who are the people impacted by immigration and border policies in our town? Who are the people that we want to pay attention to? And can we put a bike ride together to raise awareness for that? So it's trying to stir up a national movement by traveling across the whole country and shining a light on the border, which Eric, I, I'll tell you, I mean, I've in the last couple of years, I've really started paying a lot of attention to this. And uh, I realized how much I didn't know about the border, how easy it is to make immigration an issue and not a person. Mm -hmm. Once you turn the, your sights to the people involved, it changes things. And, uh, you know, if you think about what you know or what I know about the border, um, you know, it seems like a lunar scape. It seems exotic. It seems far away. It seems you're, you're told about the dangers. You're told about the brutality and the child separations, the people dying in the desert, somebody creating a wall, people having to get across a river. And like, oh my gosh, like it just sounds like it's the worst thing in the world and we should all be afraid of it. Now that's by design. People talk it up that way by design because there's, because fear motivates. And you get there and you're like, this is, the brutality that happens by our United States and frankly, Mexico policies, they violate the beauty of the humans that are engaging in this. They violate the beauty of the land. They violate the beauty of the, of the Rio Grande. Like this is a tragedy because it defiles. It's not a tragedy because it is evil. It, uh, you, you know, because the border is evil or because the people trying to come across are hordes or something like, oh my gosh, it's, it's a, it's a whole other story. So we're going to tell the stories of the people uh, as we travel. Um, and so people can travel with us. They can put their own bike rides together. They can follow us virtually and be engaged in, be engaged in all this at, at a virtual level as well. So we can find all that. We, we, the people ride.org if someone's interested. Yeah. And we will have uh, all your links in our description as well so that people have access to, to all of that. That sounds great. Um, hey, uh, to finish up here, I wanted to do something I haven't done before, so I'm not sure exactly how this will go, um, I like but I wanted to do a question answer, just, uh, uh, some questions I came up with about culture, about various topics and, uh, wanted to get your thoughts on some of that. Right. So, um, so I love progressive Christianity, but it has a significant weakness to it, uh, in my opinion. And that is, uh, well, it has several, but one in particular that, uh, is blaring to me. Um, it struggles to answer the question, why Christianity or why Jesus or why be a Christian? 
if someone was to come up to you and say, why should I be a Christian as opposed to a Buddhist or any other type of religion, how would you answer that? You know, it depends on where, where the question comes from, right? If someone's uh, thinking that what makes Christianity meaningful to me is that it holds something that the others couldn't possibly know, I would answer it in one way and try to say, look, you don't follow Christianity because it's wholly unique and, and has its own secrets that no one else can access. You follow Christianity because it's one of the pathways that allow you to find that which we can all access. And there is a uniqueness in the particularities of the Christian story, when it came about, how it came about, the order in which it places um, uh, the important parts of, of humankind, like it's particularly good, but not because it can't, it accesses something that only others do. It's just a certain way of telling this story. This was Jesus's big, I think, teaching on things is, look, we're all in on this, but there's a particular way to live that brings this about uh, and we should find that way. In, in, in other words, uh, finding a way to, to love yourself in a kind of uh, unconditional manner because it matches God's unconditional manner. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, for God doesn't separate. And, and so we, we live with one another that way, and it calls us beyond our familial narratives of, well, we should love those in our family and to the rest, who cares? Uh, no, it calls us to love everyone as if we're part of the same family of God, then recognizing that brotherhood, sisterhood, familyhood isn't enough because it taps into the Jewish story of Cain killing Abel right out of the, right out of the gates, right? So saying, well, we're all part of one beautiful family. Well, that doesn't get us enough. There's an ethical, moral call that, that, that brings us to this way. And that's supposed to be happening in the world that we live in where the story of God and the story of humanity are brought together. Now, now that's a really great story. If someone else has a story that is also powerful and is also meaningful and also drives them, the two don't have to compete with each other. They can be their own particular benefit. It's, it's, it's a bit like fruit in the, in the, you know, growing in the, in the, wild or in a grocery store that the benefits of one fruit don't, it's, it's not, you don't have to stand there with a, you know, with a, Pluot uh, and argue about how a grapefruit is so much better. Like the grapefruit's its thing, and, uh, and and they both bring about this kind of life in you, right? So I, I think what we have to the reason most people struggle with the answer to why Christianity is because they're not really sure that Christianity is all that good of news in the first place. Like once you, the features of Christianity become fully alive for someone. Uh, that question is a whole lot less um, demanding that it has to have the one thing that makes it separate from all the others. Like any tradition that calls you into the one anotherism, the shared humanity with one another, that's really, really powerful. Um, and, and then I, I but they're, if they're asking me like at a personal level, right? Like, like, Hey Doug, why are you Christian? Both. Yeah, you know, that's a 
that's a different question because now the question's more about me. They want to know how I put this package together. I get a lot of this because I do a lot of work in the political spaces. So I do a lot of work with people that are like, seriously, man, what are you doing still hanging around that crowd? You know? um, and, and why do you keep yourself rooted in that way? And a lot of my friends, former pastors, people from the old life, uh, they've just given up on all of it. They think the best way is just to let it all go. And I'm like, I don't know. Did you see Lion King? Like, you know, that whole, just forget the past. That, that stuff is in you. It's, it's not going away. So part of it for me is it was a very powerful, it was the, the, the story that captured my life as a teenager and helped me to frame a view of, of the world. That's not going away unless I experience maybe, you know, some sort of brain episode or something where I've let go and forgotten the past or had an identity impacted brain event, that's not going away. So what do I do with those thoughts that are in my head? And why do I stay in Christianity? Because those stories are deeply embedded in there and I got to work it out. It's the stuff I've got to figure out. I mean, you can take me out of the United States and now go plot me in other parts of the world, some places that I long to go to on some days. And all the American experience and enculturation I have, I, I have gone through that has formed and shaped me into my view of the world and what I see and what I don't see and how I understand the world, that all goes with me. So you can take me out of here and bring me over there. But if I don't reconcile the American story inside my head, no matter what country I'm living in, it's going to be the dominant narrative. And the same thing in the, in the, in the faith that I'm in. And frankly, I've just watched a lot of people say to themselves, well, I'm just going to bail out and I'm just not going to think about those things anymore. Good luck with that. You know, you still got this thing hanging. If you never deal with the idea that you've got an up and out guy that looks down on you with judgment and has to be appeased. And you think the way you're going to get out of that is just by saying, I don't identify with that anymore. I don't believe that. Well, more power to you, but changing core beliefs rarely happens by simply declaring, I don't believe that anymore. (laughs) I wish it did. I wish there was a magic, a magic phrase that lets that go away. So I've decided the best thing for me to do is to reconcile the versions of Christianity that I've been given that don't really match. And I just find the teachings of Jesus to be unbelievably compelling. You know, I wrote this book called Outdoing Jesus, which is Jesus' great call, right? Jesus says, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and do even greater works than these. That's the whole point of the Jesus narrative for Jesus, is that people would join on the everlasting path that Jesus is on and outdo the things that Jesus is doing, do even greater things than these. So that's the story. I like that story a lot. Um, Now, there's lots of pieces of it that are all, you know, uh, wrongheaded and going the wrong way. There, there is just there are a lot of other options, Eric. I mean, I you're like, oh, should I switch religions? Because I'll tell you, you get as deep into any other tradition as you were into Christianity. I often say to my Christian friends, you're going to find the same stuff in there. Uh, and the best thing you can do is get into interfaith dialogues with people that tell you the truth about the struggles they have inside their faith and their religion. And here we go. So. If you're going to be reconstructing, and look, I have no boundaries around my reconstruction, you know, philosophically, I, I, personally, I guess I have some resistance. Um, but I don't think Christianity, I don't think progressive Christians will want to talk about their Christianity well enough. They almost act as if the best thing they can do is downplay it and not speak about it particularly. And it really, I think it really harms, uh, harms people. You know, when I was in the evangelical world that I was welcomed into, uh, one of the things that we knew helped people grow in their own faith was talking about their faith to other people. So the reason you'd encourage someone to do evangelism 
wasn't only because you wanted the other person to believe, they wanted you to keep believing. This is what the Mormons have figured out about sending people on a Mormon mission when they're 19. Like, get them out there and engaging in this stuff and having to contend for it in the real life of the real world. And that will build a kind of uh, faith in you that's really powerful. It's one of the things that progressive Christians, I just wish, would do more. Like somehow we think that the best thing we can do in progressive Christianity is to put on our perpetual mute button and just yeah. not talk and not say things. And, and I know a lot of super progressive Christians who, when you get really deep down, you know, you get a couple of beers in or something, uh, they'll start saying, you know, you, you realize the thoughts that are still roaming in their heads. It's those same old stories. So same old questions that they had when they were 14 years old at some Bible camp and they can't seem to shake it. I'm like, just say it. It's not magic words saying it doesn't make it go away, but boy, it's better than not saying it. So I yeah. just think we have to have more engagement, more talking more. So very long answer to a very simple question, but uh, that's, that's, that's how I'm currently constructing all this. Let me ask you one more question before we leave. Um, what keeps Doug Paget up at night? Um, kind of your daily anxieties, like, uh, I, I, you know, how are my grandkids doing, uh, you know, worrying about them, can I raise enough money for this and that, uh, you know, uh, uh, at the end of my life, am I going to be somebody, you know, that's, that, that, that finished well, <laughs> you know, I mean, that kind of stuff that I wish it was the big questions, you know, I wish it was global warming and its impact. I wish it was societal, uh, struggle and decline with keeping uh, people who've been historically weak, um, continuously weak. I mean, I wish it was those things that kept me up. Those things haunt me all day long, but the subconscious stuff, I don't know, it's kind of in that simple self-preservationist <laughs> part. Like when my eyes pop open, I'm like, man, are we going to raise enough money for this thing? Or are we going to, like, how are we going to get along? And uh, uh, just the daily work, which is, you know, for me as a Jesus follower, I hear Jesus saying like, Hey, hey, man, uh, like today has enough trouble of its own, which I think sort of means like, don't think about that stuff in the middle of the night, like 3 a.m. conversations with yourself about how this is all going to go. That should wait till tomorrow. Don't, don't drag that in because right now, whatever's chemicals are rolling over your brain uh, that allowed that, that idea to come popping up to the surface those chemicals aren't going to help you really solve for that. The, you're, you're in a spiral of um, defragmenting of your brain and thoughts, and those aren't the time. So the up at night stuff is, uh, it's that stuff for me. Um, and I'm trying to develop a practice by which I say, yeah, don't, don't, don't deal with that. I've got this little perpetual one that um, I actually thought just last night, I thought, I'm thinking I'm just going to put this out on the internet. So this is my chance to put it on the internet. I've been saying it to friends for all, for about four years. I've been having this like wake up panicky dream that I wear contact lenses and I forgot to take them out. I don't wear contact lenses. I, I used to a long time ago. I had that, you know, corrective eye surgery 23 years ago, but I wake up and I'm like disoriented enough where I can't figure out like, how do I get them out of my eyes? And where's my little vial for the, for the con? And sometimes I'll get out of bed and go looking around for, and I'm partially watching myself. Like, what are you doing? You don't work. And these two brains, two parts of my brain are sort of arguing with each other. And sometimes my wife has to wake me up and, you know, I'll, so there's all, when I get little real episodes of this, I'll say to my wife, before we fall asleep, I'll say like, 
I don't wear contacts. Just remind me, I don't wear contacts. <laughs> like I can almost feel this contact lens thing coming on. And I am so intrigued by that, right? Like, what is this that's going on? And, you know, I'm thinking dream analysis, maybe something, maybe it's about visions or I don't know. I just have no idea. Uh, but that, so I something guess, deep's you know, going on there. Something deep. What keeps me up at night? The fact that I can't remember if I wear contact lenses, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And like, what is all of that? So I think the keep you up at night question is really interesting because it gives you a lens into you. No pun intended there. Sorry about that. That uh, it gives you a vantage point into your own um, psyche and like what is going on. Okay. I lied. I do have one more question because I think this is a great question to end on. Um, what gives you hope for the future? I believe the children are our future. <laughs> That's a line. Okay. That's a line from We Are the World, if you don't know that. I yes. hope someone listening chuckled for a minute. Um, uh, I'm a perpetual optimist uh, about the future. I, I think so many things are so much more hopeful. Uh, things are, uh, simultaneously, things are so much better on every measurable uh, scale now than they were pick your time a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, 3000 years ago, mm -hmm. people live longer. There's less war. There's less animus. There's less violence. There's more people living longer with better lives than, than all of those things, all of the measurements, everything is better. That doesn't mean anything is good enough. It doesn't mean we should stop our work. It doesn't mean that many things are not anywhere close to being where they should be. Absolutely not. But also, human beings are on this trajectory that is not unguided. We're making choices every day, and we need to make choices to make the world better in places that we haven't chosen to make it better enough yet. But it's just things are moving that direction. I guess one could borrow the phrase, you know, that there's a moral arc to the universe and it bends towards justice. But I think it also happens in and sort of the daily, the daily living of life, like pick the period of time you'd rather live in, you know, yeah. anywhere in the world right now. Uh, it's you're hard pressed, um, uh, on scale on scale. So I'm quite hopeful. I think people are going to come up with solutions to what have seemed like intractable problems. Uh, and then we will move on to the other intractable problems and we will keep moving in this direction and keep moving this way. So I am quite hopeful. I think, um, uh, that, that human experience can continue to help more people live good uh, lives uh, here and forevermore uh, than, than ever before. Great. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Doug. It's such an honor, Eric. I'm sorry I didn't get to ask you some questions. I run a podcast. I'll return the favor sometime and we will, we will tit for this tat and you will, uh, you'll be on the other end of pointed questions. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Doug. You're welcome.